The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints and the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The flower fades and the grass withers, but the word of God abides forever. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so that will give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, and then we'll open in prayer. One other announcement before we start, deacons, don't forget there is a deacons meeting after class tonight. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to study your word this evening, that your word indeed is a light that shines in the darkness of our thinking, the darkness of our souls, and illuminates our thinking as to absolute truth. It is on the basis of your absolute truth, your revelation, that we gain the perspective we need in order to evaluate human history, in order to understand the ebb and flow of events that take place on the international scale, and give us the understanding that you are the God who controls history. And that no matter how much chaos there is, no matter how un- much uncertainty or insecurity there might be, no matter how this might affect us in our own personal lives, we know that you are in control, and therefore we can trust you and we can relax and rely upon you to take care of every detail in our lives. Father, we continue to pray for our nation and for our president. pray that you would give him wisdom, give him insight as he leads this nation. Father, we pray that you would uh, protect him from the forces that seek to discourage him. We pray for our men in the military. We pray for those who are serving in leadership positions in the cabinet and in uh, other positions of the intelligence uh, agencies. We pray that you would give them wisdom and skill at what they do, that they might be able to uh, discern and determine uh, where threats come from, and the correct, proper response. We pray that you would continue to protect this nation. Now, Father, we pray for us as we look at your word that we might be responsive to it, recognize that this is your revelation to us, and in this we have great profit as we study it and see how it applies to our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're going to continue our study tonight in Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 
10 through 11 presents us with the last vision. Three chapters present the last vision that God gives to Daniel about the future related to Israel. Daniel chapter 10 was a summary of the circumstances surrounding the giving of the vision, the the setting of the giving of the vision. And in that chapter, we gained an insight into what goes on in the angelic realm when there is any sort of conflict in human history. Too often we have a tendency, as we studied last time, to look at history in a single dimension sense, just as what goes on materially, just as what goes on in the physical dimension, what we can see and what we can uh, empirically study. But what this chapter demonstrated was that there is something that goes on in the invisible realm, in the realm of the angels, and that what goes on there in terms of the struggle, the battle between fallen angels and God's holy angels or elect angels influences what goes on in human affairs. Now, I pointed out last time that the danger, the dangerous heresy that's developed around that in, in our era is a doctrine of territorial spirits that really comes out of the, what's called the third wave of the uh, charismatic movement in the late 20th century where there's an emphasis on praying down these demons, identifying these demons, and that, that these territorial spirits aren't just aren't just demons or angels that have responsibilities over empires or nations, but it extends down to the various uh, blocks or neighborhoods in which you live. And the reason that, that people don't really get anywhere spiritually is because of the influence of these evil angels. And that's a completely erroneous uh, application from this particular passage. It simply talks about the fact that there are these angels, but Daniel, in his interaction, never prays down these angels. He never tries to identify these angels. The focus of the Christian is never on what the demons are doing or what Satan's trying to do. It's always direct communication to God. God is going to deal with the unseen, invisible warfare. We deal with what we can control, what we can deal with, which is our own sin nature. And frankly, for most of us, that's more than enough to deal with. You know, we don't need to worry about demons and everything else and get distracted by that. Now, as we come to Daniel chapter 11, there's a couple of about, I want to make about four points by way of introduction. And the first point has to do with the position of this chapter historically. Historically, this is one of the most attacked passages in Scripture outside of Genesis 1 through 3. Of course, Genesis 1 through 3 is attacked because of its position on origins, that everything was created by a personal infinite God. But this chapter is attacked because if this chapter is what it purports to be, then that gives overwhelming evidence that that personal infinite creator God of Genesis 1 through 3 actually exists. Because what this chapter not only uh, what this chapter claims to do is to give detailed accounts of history two to three hundred years before it happens not just a broad flow of history doesn't give a, a timetable that might be misinterpreted or, or reinterpreted because of calendar differences or something like that there's always some way that people can try to get around the implications of uh, such a detailed prophecy as Daniel 9 but Daniel 11 gives tremendous detail about what's going to happen in the Persian Empire in the next 50 years, what's going to happen in the subsequent Greek Empire, what will happen eventually in detail 
under the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes, and then it's going to leap forward in history from there and show how Antiochus Epiphanes and what actually happened in his reign is going to parallel what the Antichrist will do in the tribulation. So that gives us an overview. Daniel 11 was the first chapter to be attacked by this kind of anti-supernatural criticism, that, and it occurred in the 3rd century A.D. So this battle has been going on for some time, and the person that first put forth this view was named Porphyry. I'll write that up on the overhead so you can correctly spell that in your notes. Porphyry, P-O-R-P-H-Y-R-Y, and he lived in the 3rd century A.D. And Porphyry was an antagonist to Christianity, and he was smart enough to realize that if this chapter was what it purports to be, that is a, a detailed, precise prediction of exactly what would happen in history, that if this is what it claims to be, then the God it purports to be from must necessarily exist, and that there is no way that the skeptic can avoid the existence of God if this chapter is true prediction. And so Porphyry set out to undermine Christianity with regard to the predictive element of prophecy in the Old Testament. And he claimed and tried to demonstrate that Daniel really wasn't written in 535 B.C. Let's I know some of you are a little temporally challenged, so let me put this up here on the overhead. Here's the cross. This takes place in approximately 33 A.D. Jesus is born approximately 5 B.C. That's because of calendar problems. We won't go into that. Daniel writes between 550 and 535 B.C. The Persian Empire lasts from 539 B.C., down to about 330 B.C. when uh, Alexander the Great comes on the scene. Then you have the period of the Greek Empire down to approximately 150 when Rome comes in the ascendancy. And what Porphyry claimed was that Daniel, instead of being written way back here in 550, foretelling events that are going to occur between roughly um, 530 B.C. all the way down to about 150 B.C., that Daniel was, in fact, not written until about 150 to 160 B.C., and so this isn't predictive prophecy. He, this isn't the foretelling of the future because, see, his assumption is that can't happen. In a natural universe where there's no intrusion of the supernatural, where God doesn't speak to man, that's the presupposition. It's an anti-supernatural presupposition. They Critics presuppose it can't happen, and so arguing from that position, they would say, well, since prophecy really can't happen in the real world, it couldn't be the, you can't have this kind of accuracy in real prophecy, so it's, it's gotta have really been written later. So you see, they, they front load the argument with their presupposition, and they argue it has to be history, not prophecy, and so that's what Porphyry did, and the, the classic response, was by Jerome. Jerome, who, those of you from a Roman Catholic background, you usually knew as Saint Jerome, the translator of the, um, of the Latin Vulgate. And he wrote a commentary on Daniel, defending the, uh, early date of Daniel, the 530, 
5 to 550 B.C., and demonstrating that this was true predictive prophecy. And for a thousand years, Jerome's arguments stood uh, against those of Porphyry. But see, that, that conflict between Jerome and, and Porphyry mirrored the present conflict between the conservative and the liberal. What I've discovered in church history is that it's really good to go back and read what those early guys wrote because in many cases they had greater insight and greater evidence and greater arguments for the case than many modern uh, theologians have. So that's one of the reasons years ago that I uh, uh, put an emphasis on church history so that I would be forced to read and study the early church fathers and, and many of their arguments. Now, one of the important reasons that we have a prophecy like this in the Old Testament and we can see that it was fulfilled in such detail is because for us in the church age, that becomes one of the greatest evidences for the truth of, uh, of the Bible. And that's something that uh, whoever the prep school teacher is who teaches Christian evidences should pay attention to in this particular prophecy. It doesn't prove the Bible, not in the sense that a scientist wants to prove something in a laboratory, but it is uh, one of many evidences that the, that the, the uh, Bible is distinct from any other book in human history because it contains these elements of genuine predictive prophecy uh, in many cases centuries before it was actually fulfilled. We live in the church age, and during the church age there are no direct miracles. In fact, even the miracles that Jesus performed are simply attested by witnesses and word of mouth, so for some they could be easily dismissed as mere legend or somebody's trying to uh, just build up Jesus and make it look as if he is uh, it was some sort of miracle worker. But when it comes to predictive prophecies such as the detailed timetable of Daniel 9, such as uh, Ezekiel's prophecy regarding the fall of Tyre, Jeremiah's prophecies regarding the fall of, of uh, Babylon, and the prophecy of Daniel in Daniel chapter 11, you can't get away from the fact that there are prophecies, detailed prophecies, detailed predictive prophecies in the Scripture that the fulfillment of which could not happen unless God were the one in control of history and unless he actually knew every detail before it transpired. So for the, for the believer today, the, the fulfillment of these miracles, of these uh, prophecies historically, uh, provide us with tremendous evidence of the supernatural origin of Scripture and of its, of its veracity. And this is one reason why the book of Daniel, especially Daniel 11, has been a major battleground for the last 16 or 1700 years. Now, the second point I want to make by way of introduction to this chapter is we, is to ask a question. On the basis of this question, why did the pre-incarnate Son of God, remember we have the pre-incarnate Son of God introduced back in Daniel chapter 10, why did the pre-incarnate Son of God find it necessary to give Daniel such detailed prophecy like we have here in Daniel chapter 11? And the reason is, is to provide some, some hope, a level of hope, a level of certainty to the believers in Israel who are going to live through these tumultuous times. Now, too often people today think that, that somehow tumultuous times are a modern thing, and we forget that, that people in generations prior to us have gone through much worse situations. We think, can think of uh, the uh, 
Russians who lived under the Soviet Empire and during World War II. And if you've never studied that, the the uh, Soviets lost 27 million dead in World War II, and I think the United States lost a little less than 400,000 uh, dead in World War II. So just think of that in human terms. If you were living somewhere where that where the battle raged, somewhere in Western Russia, and how that would affect you for for four years in terms of your family, in terms of the number of people in your family who were probably killed during the war in terms of how it affected your business, your economics, a, a home and a life that you had built that would be completely destroyed by the war. So people in, in history have gone through times of tremendous uncertainty and instability where they have spent years sweating and toiling to build something and not much, not anything compared to what most of us have. And yet, in just a few short years, they lost everything, and they lived through times of incredible instability and times of tremendous fear. And we think about the events on September 11th and the uncertainty of events in our own time and what might happen, and we hear of threats continuously on the um, uh, put out by the government that there's this plot discovered or that plot discovered. And for many people, the fear factor increases, but what God is showing here to the Jews of that era as well as to us is that God is in control of history. And when we understand God's plan, when the Jew of that time could understand through the details of Daniel 11 what God's plan was for Israel, what God was going to do, and as they saw these events unfold before their very eyes, it gave them hope. Now, remember, hope in the Scripture, especially in the New Testament, the word is elpis, and it has that idea of confident expectation. And hope focuses on the future. And when the Jews recognized that they had a future and that God had a destiny, that despite the chaos today, the uncertainty today, the adversity today, whatever the difficulty might be in their life at that time or your life at this time, that when you realize that God has a destiny and a purpose and you can start living in light of that destiny and purpose, that gives you hope. So there's a relationship here between hope and what we studied is the sixth problem-solving device or stress buster, our personal sense of our eternal destiny, that this enables us to live with tranquility and calm in the midst of uh, uncertain circumstances. This is the principle that's outlined in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. There Paul gives us a little schematic on Christian growth. This is not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations. And the word there for tribulations is the Greek word thlipsis, which means pressure. It's adversity, difficulty, when you're being pressed down or weighed down by circumstances. We have joy. We exult. We are exuberant. I mean, this isn't just a Christian who says, yeah, I'm going through trials, but the Lord's going to get me through, and you carry this burden in your voice like it's, I, I'm going to apply doctrine, but it's tough. You know, this is a believer who's, who's exalting in the fact that he's going through tribulations. He's excited about it because he knows what the process is. See, we exalt in our pressures, our adversities, knowing, and here we have a present, active, causative participle, and it should be translated because we know something. We, it's the same principle James has in James uh, 1, 2, that counted all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, because you know, it's a causal participle there as well, because you know something. 
you know that God is working in and through those the, that adversity, giving you the opportunity to to apply doctrine, to apply the word, to apply promises or principles to that adversity, and by doing so under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, under the filling of the Holy Spirit, spiritual growth is produced, spiritual maturity is then uh, developed. So we exalt in our adversity because we know that adversity brings about perseverance. That's hupomene, which means hanging in there. And perseverance develops proven character. The Greek word there is dokime, which means to, to exemplified character, exemplified or demonstrated integrity. And demonstrated integrity then develops hope. See, the last thing in the chain is hope. See, how do you get from spiritual infancy to, to that stage in spiritual growth of spiritual adolescence we've studied so much, which is that personal sense of our eternal destiny. How do we get from point A to the midpoint? It's by going through this process, adversity. Testing gives you the opportunity to apply doctrine. That brings about endurance. Endurance develops character, exemplified character, and that gets you to the midpoint, which is hope, confident expectation. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God, that is God's love, a subjective genitive, has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. This is the principle that the Jews are going to realize by applying the principles of Daniel chapter 11. Daniel 11 gives them that blueprint. They know where they're going. So that gives them hope, and they can apply doctrine in the midst of the crises that are going to occur in Israel during this two- to three-hundred-year period. Here's a chart, a little graphic to work it out. We start off with tribulations. Tribulations of pressure and adversity, and that leads to perseverance. We stick with it, what my mother used to call stick-to-itiveness. That's a good old southern phrase. Stick-to-itiveness, hanging in there, continuing to apply doctrine, continuing to go to Bible class week in and week out. You may not see the end of the tunnel. In fact, when you do see a light at the end of the tunnel, it may be that proverbial train, and you just hit harder and harder testing. But it's all under the sovereign control of God, and you stick with it, and you continue to apply doctrine, you continue to claim promises, and that develops character. See, the Christian maturity is all about developing character. Uh, demonstrated integrity, dakamazo, and that then leads to hope. That is how you get from spiritual infancy to spiritual adolescence. That's the growth process. That confident expectation that God has a plan and purpose and what the decisions that we are making today are going to determine who we are and what we do when we arrive in the millennial kingdom. Now let's go back to Daniel chapter 1. Back our slides up here. Had one out of order. Daniel 1, or 11.1 is really the last verse. It's really the last verse in Daniel 10. I guess the uh, whoever divided it into chapters saw the temporal marker in the first year of Darius the Mede and thought that was like all the others and made it a chapter division. But actually, this is the closing statement in the previous chapter. Let me go back to verse 20 and just pick up the context. This is where... Uh, Daniel is having a discussion with this angel who's interpreting the vision for him. Then he, that is the um, the interpreting angel, says, Do you know why I have come to you? 
And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia, that is the demon who is seeking to influence uh, Cyrus. And when I have gone forth, indeed the prince of Greece will come. History's moving on. Satan's going to get past Persia because Persia is going to be too pro-Semitic. We studied that the last time. Under Cyrus, the Jews were allowed to return to the land. They were going to start rebuilding the temple. And so Satan wanted to target the Jews and to stop them from, from uh, being able to go back to the land because he wanted to prevent the coming of Messiah. So do you know why I've come to you? Now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia. When I've gone, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. That's the demon who will influence the kingdom of Greece. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I even I had stood up to confirm and strengthen him. So the him here refers to Michael the prince. And what this angel is saying is that in this battle against the demonic the demon who was trying to influence Cyrus, it took both Michael and this interpreting angel to overcome the influence of this demon on, on Cyrus. Now, we don't know the mechanics of that. Speculation gets us in trouble. But all the Scripture says is that this happens, but that's not where ever, never in Scripture is the believer to focus on those kinds of dynamics. It's never made an issue. We're just told here that this is a dynamic, that history is more than what you see and what you feel. And now in verse 2, we're going to get an explanation of the vision. Let me rapidly move through this chart. Daniel 11.2, now I will tell you the truth. Now the truth here refers back to the use of truth in verse 21. I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. Then, he's, then in verse 2 of chapter 11, I will tell you the truth. He's going to explain to Daniel the meaning of that revelation of truth that has been given to him. Now, I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. As soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. So this is gives us the outline of that kingdom, the current kingdom that Daniel is in, the kingdom of Persia. Now, if we look at an outline, if we look at an outline of Daniel chapter 11, there are three sections to this outline, so you might want to just note them down in either in your Bible or in your notes. The first is div- division covers the history of the Medo-Persian Empire, and that's in 11, chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. That's the history of the Medo-Persian Empire. Then in chapter 2, uh, excuse me, point number 2 in the outline, the focus is on Greeks and the period of Hellenization, the period of the Greek uh, Empire and the, and the influence of the breakup of the Greek Empire and the Hellenization of the Middle East. And that covers ele- chapter 11, verse 4, down through 36. We'll so- show some subdivisions of that when we get there, uh, probably next week. 11, 4 through 36 focuses on the Greeks and the period of Hellenization. And then the third division prophesies events in the tribulation. Events in the tribulation, that's 
chapter 11, verse 36, down through 45. Now, one other thing I want to go back to by way of introduction before we get into the text itself, and that is that there are this passage shows for us that the purpose of history is to glorify God. That the purpose of history is to glorify God. Now, that's a very important thing to say. The purpose of these events is to bring glory to God. Now, you see, we hold to a position called dispensationalism. Most of you are familiar with that term, and you were here when we went through a rather extended six- or seven-month study of covenants and dispensations. Well, the difference, there are two basic theological systems out there, and this is important to understand if you want to get a glimpse of what's going on today and understand history. The first is replacement theology. It's called replacement theology because in this theological system, Israel is X'd out of God's plan permanently and replaced by the church. Now, let me show you why that's important. Replacement theology undergirds Roman Catholic theology, Lutheran theology, all Reformed theology, all Calvinism, and Covenant theology. Wesleyan theology, which comes out of the Anglican Church, it influences much of... uh, has come to influence much of Pentecostal charismatic theology, although for many years in the early part of that movement, they held to dispensationalism. But because it is inherently a um, revivalistic movement and there are inherent post-millennial kinds of themes, the improvement of society, uh, in the since the late 70s and early 80s, more and more Pentecostal charismatics have divorced themselves from dispensationalism and moved towards some form of a replacement theology. That's what you see when they're kingdom now. Every time you hear people talk about the kingdom, that we're children of the kingdom, emphasizing some element of the kingdom today, that's some kind of replacement theme. Well, what what has happened historically is if Israel has no future and it's no longer significant to God and God's plan, then that becomes a very subtle um, foundation for anti-Semitism. The way that plays out since 1948 is in in covenant theology, Israel, the current nation of Israel, has no purpose in God's plan. There's no future state. There's no tribulation as we know it, as we've described it. There's no future millennial kingdom. It's just an aberration. Now, that becomes a justification for what I will call the neo-anti-Semitism. See, we're on the edge of a new anti-Semitism. And this isn't the anti-Semitism of Hitler that's saying that all Jews are evil. And the Jews are the, are the, um, are responsible for all evil in history. And anti-Semitism is about as far, you know, if you get into anti-Semitism, that's about as far from the Bible as you can get. The Bible says that those who bless Israel, God will bless. Those who curse Israel, God will curse. But in, this is a new form of anti-Semitism, which takes a position that Israel really doesn't need to be supported. So it's more subtle. It's an attack on the state of Israel, and that becomes the cloak or the guise for the new anti-Semitism. 
And, you know, people today will often wonder, and perhaps you've wondered, why it is that, that most of Europe is not supportive of the modern state of Israel, and yet the United States is very supportive of the modern state of Israel. What makes the difference? Theology makes the difference. Doctrine makes the difference. The reason America is pro-Israel is because of the influence of premillennialists and dispensationalists since the mid-19th century. Because it, it, in, in most fundamentalists, most conservative Christians have been influenced by dispensationalism in the early part of this century, we are pro-Israel. But Europe doesn't have a dispensational or premillennial uh, element to its historical theology. It's predominantly amillennialism in their Roman Catholic, Lutheran, and Calvinistic theology. So they've never had a high view of the Jews, and that has always made them open to anti-Semitism and the harshest forms of anti-Semitism they've seen in the... Um, uh, in the Third Reich under Hitler. And he often quoted Luther because Luther made some horrible statements, some vitriolic statements against the Jews in his later use, later years. He was terribly, terribly anti-Semitic. Well, in covenant theology, the purpose for history isn't the glorification of God, as I just said. This chapter shows the purpose for history is the glorification of God. In covenant theology, the purpose for history is to save mankind. Now, I want you to think about this a minute. Now, this logic may jump past some of you, but others of you are going to understand this. If the purpose for God is to save men, then God fails because most men aren't saved. So that's the first problem with, with that. If God's purpose is to save men, and most men aren't saved, then God fails. But the way Calvinism and covenant theology gets away from that is through the doctrine of election and limited atonement. Is God's purpose is to save the elect... And he secures the salvation of the elect. So you see, covenant theology is inherently related to both a Calvinistic view of election and limited atonement. And that means that God, that Christ died only for the elect. He did not die for everyone, but Scripture teaches that he is the Savior of all men, especially the saved. So that indicates that Christ died for all, although uh, only those who believe are going to be saved. Now, in dispensational theology, we, oh, excuse me, the second problem. The second problem with the view that, that uh, history is just soteriological or God's plan to save men is that that doesn't include God's plan for the angels at all. It completely ignores God's plan for the angels. And there is no salvation plan for the angels, and it just limits God's plan for history to the human race. So it is a, it's faulty on Two accounts, whereas it, the the idea that the purpose of history is to glorify God includes God's purposes for mankind and the angels, and it also fits with unlimited atonement. So dispensationalism has a b- better understanding of history, not just because it's dispensational, but because it's biblical. It more accurately reflects the biblical text, and those who are not are not biblical. And in my opinion, they are in some level heretics, especially at the level of hermeneutics. So we see here that the purpose in this chapter shows us that the purpose for history is to bring glory to God. 
Okay, we'll get to uh, just begin verse 2. Verse 2 states, Now I will tell you the truth. Behold, three more kings will arise in Persia. Now, at the time that Daniel writes this, Cyrus is the king. Cyrus is the, has put together the empire when he first conquered uh, the Medes in 549 B.C. He went on to conquer the Lydians. He defeated Creusus uh, at the Halles River. And then uh, he dies in 529 B.C. He is the present king, so he's not counted in this list because the text reads yet in the Hebrew. Literally, it says yet there will be. That is future. So Cyrus is the present king at the time of this uh, this vision, which is in the third year of Cyrus. So he is currently the king, and he is going to be succeeded by his son, Cambyses. Now, Cyrus was a fantastic military leader and organizer and administrator of the kingdom. He defeated three major kingdoms. He defeated the Medes, he defeated the Lydians, and he defeated the Babylonians in order to consolidate this this vast empire. But his son Cambyses extended it even more by conquering the Egyptians. So under Cyrus and Cambyses, the Persians came to rule everything from Greece to India. That would include just northern India, what we would call today Pakistan and Afghanistan. They ruled all of Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Iran, all of the Middle East, Syria, Turkey, up into the northern parts of uh, Greece, Thrace, uh, southern parts of uh, Russia, Kyrgyzstan, uh, Turkmenistan would also have come under their their, their, uh, empire. So Cambyses and Cyrus consolidate this. Cambyses is the first of these three kings mentioned. He is succeeded by a false king. See, Cambyses had a younger brother named Smerdis. Smerdis opted for the Zoroastrian religion of the Medes. And so the Zoroastrian priests who come down in history under the name Magi, and to be identified with the same Magi that show up at Jesus' birth, except those Magi were believers. How come they were believers? They got the gospel indirectly from generation to generation from Daniel. So um, you have this group of magi who were the the uh, religious uh, priestly class. They were originally a, a, a Persian tribe, and uh, they, they wanted to get rid of Cambyses and his family because they were not pro uh, the Zoroastrians. So when Smerdis, his younger brother, dies, Cambyses is down fighting in Egypt. They came up with an imposter, another Median uh, priest, named, and he's called in history pseudo or false Smerdis. He was a counterfeit. They didn't weren't going to tell anybody that the real Smerdis died. They were going to uh, pass off a, a duplicate, a counterfeit, in his place. And so, when Cambyses is mysteriously killed, many believe he was assassinated by the Magi on his way back from Egypt. They put this pseudo-Smerdis into power, but he only lasts a year before he is assassinated. And then he is succeeded by another one of the great kings of the Persians, Darius Hystaspes I, who is also called Darius the Great. And he, like Cambyses and Cyrus, is a great administrator and great military leader and takes Persia to uh, fantastic heights. And, and under him, the, the, the Persians begin to look west 
towards uh, the Greeks and taking control of the Greek peninsula. They want to align themselves or ally themselves with uh, against the Greeks with the uh, Trojans. And you all know, have heard the story of the Trojan War and the Trojan Horse, and that's what this relates to, that after the Trojans were defeated by the Greeks, then the Trojans looked for an ally to help them so that they could get revenge on the Greeks, and they went to Darius. And, and it was under his successor, who's the fourth king mentioned here, and that is Xerxes. So uh, Xerxes is the great king who amasses an incredible amount of wealth and takes an army of 180,000 against the Greeks. We have studied that in some detail, and we'll review it again when we come back next time. So in this remarkable prophecy in verse 2, Daniel is told that there are going to be three more kings after Cyrus, and these would be Cambyses, Pseudo-Smerdis, and Darius, and then the fourth king will be far richer than all of them by his strength, and through his riches he shall stir up all against the realm of Greece. And so that predicts exactly what Xerxes will do in taking the Persians against the Greeks. And we'll come back next time, and we'll begin to study that. But don't forget the point here. This isn't just history. This isn't just details. I want you, as we study this, to think of what it would have been like, what this would have meant for you personally if you were a Jew and you had gone back to the land because in the midst of all of this, under Cambyses, they stopped building the temple. They come under more anti-Semitic pressure and opposition. Under uh, Xerxes, there's more problems. And then later on, under the Greeks, there's going to be more anti-Semitism and more attacks against the Jews and more assaults against the Jews. And it's during this time, it's it's incredible instability and people would be commonly asking, what is God, what's God's purpose for us? Has God forgotten us? Has God just made these promises and gone off and now he's concerned about somebody else? And see, those are the questions that many of us ask whenever there are difficulties or problems or adversities in our life. And yet God has given us his revelation so that we can have confidence, so that we can have hope in the midst of instability, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of chaos. We can relax and be calm knowing that Jesus Christ controls history with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to look at this portion of your word and to be challenged by the fact that and reminded by the fact that you control history, that even though things may seem out of control, uh, both in terms of the details of our lives and in terms of the events of history, the events unfolding in this war against terrorism, uh, this gives us confidence, gives us hope. We can relax that no matter what happens, even if Horrible things happen. We know that you are still in control, that that you have not been taken off guard or by surprise in these events, and you have made provision and given us the information we need to be able to uh, relax with stability, happiness, and confidence in the midst of these difficult times. Father, we just thank you for your word, for the truth that it represents and reveals to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.